Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. There's never a shortage of political stories these days. And there was two big hits to the president's team. Paul Manafort, his former campaign chairman, and Michael Cohen, his former attorney, both turned into convicted felons this past week. Paul Manafort was found guilty of eight of 18 charges of bank fraud and tax fraud. Michael Cohen pled guilty to eight charges of bank and tax fraud and two charges specifically in those were for campaign finance violations. And those were related to the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. President Trump turned to Fox and Friends to give them an interview for his reaction. He spoke to Ainsley Earhart. He talked about his attorney general, Jeff Sessions. This whole thing has been a thorn in his side. The Russia investigation, the special counsel investigation by Bob Mueller. And he says that I never should have put Jeff Sessions in there because he never got control of the Department of Justice. Let's hear President Trump right now. The Dems are very strong in the Justice Department. I put an attorney general that never took control of the Justice Department, Jeff Sessions. It's a sort of an incredible. He's had this weird relationship with the attorney general ever since that happened, since he recused himself. And Jeff Sessions fought back. He actually released a statement about that. What did he say, Miranda? Jeff Sessions released a written statement where he said, I took control of the Department of Justice the day I was sworn in, which is why we have an unprecedented success at effectuating the president's agenda. This was posted on Twitter by his spokesperson, Sarah Isger Flores. He didn't stop there. He said, I'm not going to be pressured by any political influence. It was an awkward situation because they all had this big meeting. Sessions was headed to the White House to discuss criminal sentencing reform. What did people inside the room say about that interaction? Anonymous sources said that it was super awkward because the president didn't say a word about their confrontation. There was no acknowledgement, not even a passing mention of what happened during the morning to the point where this source didn't even know if Trump was aware of Jeff Sessions. And he might not have been. He might have been running around and not have seen the statement. So it's just a weird thing. The other thing the president keeps talking about, he admitted in this interview with Ainsley Earhart that the money came from him, that he reimbursed Michael Cohen for the payments to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. He keeps pointing to this thing of where the money came from, from the campaign finance. Let's hear a clip of that real quick. Those two counts aren't even a crime. They weren't campaign finance. Did you know about the payments? Uh, Later on, I knew. Later on. But you have to understand, Ainsley, what he did, and they weren't taken out of campaign finance. That's a big thing. That's a much bigger thing. Did they come out of the campaign? They didn't come out of the campaign. They came from me and I tweeted about it. You know, I put, I don't know if you know, but I tweeted about the payments, but they didn't come out of campaign. In fact, my first question when I heard about it was, did they come out of the campaign? Because that could be a little dicey. The president kept saying that there really is no law broken. The campaign finance violations are not a big deal. And President Obama had his own violations when he was running for president. So for more on that, we spoke to Lauren Meyer. She's a news editor for Axios. We talked about the difference between the campaign finance violations and then the larger picture. What does it mean that Michael Cohen is now spilling all the beans? With Obama's 2008 campaign, 
They paid one of the largest fines of any presidential campaign for failing to give adequate notice of around 1,300 campaign contributions, which totaled over $1.8 million. So it's a different kind of violation than Cohen, which is basically being accused of paying a woman that then candidate had an affair with. So these are two very separate violations, but a lot of people are drawing connections between the two. Right. And that's really where the difference is, as that in the case of Michael Cohen, he said that President Trump ordered him to do it, that he knowingly knew that he would be committing a crime because they were going to hide it. It was hush money. They were obviously not going to report it. And it was done in an effort to influence the election. So that's really the sticking point here. That's why Michael Cohen pleaded guilty to it. And that's why it's a criminal act. By pleading guilty, what Cohen is doing is that both he and prosecutors are avoiding the uncertainty of a trial. We saw with the Paul Manafort trial the media attention around it, the political implications of it. But so what this plea deal is really a significant blow for Trump. So Cohen was part of his inner circle for more than a decade. He worked as his personal attorney at the Trump Organization and continued to advise the president even after the election. So While he wasn't directly involved in the White House, he did advise the president to a certain level even after he was elected. Yeah, I mean, he knows so much because he just the proximity that he was to the president all the time. Michael Cohen's lawyer, Lenny Davis, went on MSNBC and said that he's willing to spill a lot of other secrets, that he has knowledge of certain subjects that could be of interest to the special counsel. People are speculating that the president knew about the 2016 meeting at the Trump Tower and he knew about the Russian hacking of the Democratic institutions. So if Michael Cohen comes clean with some of that stuff, it really puts the president in some potential legal trouble. It really does. And people keep floating around this idea of an impeachment and impeachment proceedings against President Trump, while not immediate, did go from a theoretical danger to a pretty vivid reality with Cohen's guilty plea. You can indict a sitting president. So some people have said if they want to pursue something, they might just wait till he gets out of office to charge him with some stuff. Impeachment is a hard sell, but that's why the midterm elections are so important. Republicans are saying, you know, we have to win to avoid something like this because, you know, it's going to be in the back of the minds of Democrats if they take over the House. Something that Democrats have been saying is that they're really using this guilty plea from Michael Cohen to advance another fight, which is delaying the confirmation process of Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh. They're arguing that because Cohen implicated President Trump in a financial crime, that that is something that is too inappropriate of Trump to be allowed to select a Supreme Court justice. New York State has subpoenaed Michael Cohen in the probe about the Trump Foundation now. This really just came one day after pleading guilty to eight counts of criminal financial charges. And what this investigation is looking into, led by the New York Attorney General, who argues that Trump used charitable assets to pay off legal obligations of entities he controlled to promote Trump hotels, purchase personal items, and even support his presidential election campaign. It also names hundreds of thousands of dollars from the Trump Foundation improperly used in a number of instances. So the big connection here that the subpoena is, I believe, trying to link to is that if Cohen was already implicit in making illegal payments at Trump direction, 
Could he have any connection to these illegal payments that the state alleges the Trump Foundation to have made in the years prior? They've always said that Michael Cohen was potentially the most dangerous person to the president because of how much he knows. And now it's kind of all starting to come out. Lauren Meyer, news editor for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. One of the biggest stories broke early in the week, and that's the story of Molly Tibbetts. She's the University of Iowa student who had been missing for more than a month. We ended up finding out she was left in a cornfield covered with corn stalks and corn leaves. And the person that police arrested was Christian Rivera, a 24-year-old guy from Mexico. He's in the country illegally. He had provided false identification to his employer. They said they tried to use the E-Verify system. There was a mistake. They cross-referenced with a Social Security Administration system, and he used false documents. So he was able to get employment. And we found out that he was following her. Molly Tibbetts had went on a jog. He was following her in his car. He he ended up approaching her. He blacked out, as he says, and the story goes from there. The Iowa State Medical Examiner conducted their autopsy already. We haven't received the full autopsy report yet. They just gave us some preliminary conclusions. Miranda, what did they say happened to Molly Tibbetts? The state medical examiner has determined that Molly's manner of death was a homicide resulting from multiple sharp force injuries, meaning She was essentially stabbed to death. Right. We don't know the murder weapon yet. We don't know other details. For the rest of the story, you know, the story really broke where they caught Christian Rivera and his car following Molly Tibbetts on security camera footage. We're going to speak to Gary Barrett. He's a reporter and anchor for WHO Radio in Iowa for the rest of the story. We don't know exactly how long they've had that security footage, and it may be that it was in the context that originally they were looking for Molly, they weren't looking for a killer, but they were able to find security footage that showed her running the night that she disappeared. They saw this car that kept going by. It was a Chevy Malibu that kept circling around, it appeared, in that area. And then they found that the Malibu was owned by this person who is identified as uh, Christian Rivera. They brought him in on Monday of this week. That's how long it took to sift through all this stuff and to find information. I'm assuming that it took a long time to wade through the bureaucracy of immigration to find out exactly who he was to trace back all the information. And I'm sure they've done a pretty good, thorough job on this, but they didn't find him until Monday. And it wasn't until Tuesday morning that he led them to the body, which was found in a cornfield about 20, 30 feet from the road, but it had been covered up with corn stalks and corn leaves so that it wouldn't have been seen from an aerial shot and probably could have easily just been passed over by people that were out doing the physical search. Right. Yeah. As the story goes, Christian Rivera, they caught his car pacing back and forth in the video. They said that he was following her a little bit. He tried to get out and talk to her. She said, hey, I, you know, leave me alone. I'm going to call the cops. And he got angry. And at that point, he told investigators that he blacked out, which he does often when he gets angry or something. He comes to and he remembers that the body is in his trunk of his car. And then he said he put her in the cornfield and covered up with the corn stalks and everything. He indicated that he had blacked out. And the only thing that he remembered was opening the trunk and there was her body. He saw in the seat next to him in his car, her uh, earphones that were bloodied. And that, I guess, triggered the memory to go check the trunk. And that's when he 
popped the trunk and saw her body and carried it out to the cornfield. Christian Rivera is not in the country legally, but he was working at a local farm out there where he submitted some documents, I guess an ID and a social security number. The owners of the farm there thought they were checking it through the E-Verify system, but apparently that wasn't the case. It was just kind of a social security administrative system. And if you're providing false documents and the social security number checks out, it checks out. It's a valid social security number. But I guess there was a mix up there and he had been working at this farm for a few years. Yeah, he had. And there's been a lot of speculation all over the state about how he got his ID whether it was stolen, whether it was a state-issued ID card, because that was what some media outlets reported. But the Iowa Department of Transportation says that they have checked not only the name, but they've also checked facial ID because every state-issued ID has a picture associated with it. And they cannot find any individual where an ID was supplied in the state of Iowa. So it had to come outside of the state of Iowa. And they've said that they're able to issue a license to people uh, considered temporary foreign nationals, but they have to register with immigration to do that. So all of this indicates that it probably was an illegal ID of some sort, either stolen or obtained from someone else. And the owners of the farm said he was a good worker. Nobody ever knew anything. And then even after Molly Tibbetts was killed and everything, he went back to work and they said everything was cool. Like nobody noticed anything different about him. But one thing they did say is they didn't know him by that name. They did not know him as Christian Rivera. They haven't said what the name was, but they said they didn't know him by that name. And they had no reason to suspect anything at that point. They uh, assumed that he'd been vetted properly and like every other worker that's there. The story of Molly Tibbetts was very tragic and and the community there rallied around the family and really intense searches and trying to find her. And you're going to hear a lot more about Molly Tibbetts and Christian Rivera as the months go. Unfortunately, these things always get politicized Uh, right away. The president has talked about it, the White House through Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the governor there in Iowa have all said, you know, if we had stronger immigration policies this thing could have been averted, possibly. Right away, these things happen, but increasingly, you're going to be hearing these names tied to this issue. Gary Barrett, reporter and anchor for WHO Radio in Iowa, thank you very much for joining us. Sure. One of the other big stories that we've been following is that of the Golden State Killer. He was caught back in April. DNA evidence linked him DNA evidence linked him to some murders. We know that he's been accused of rapes and murders all up and down the state in Northern California, all the way down to Southern California. The latest thing was, is we didn't know where he was going to be tried, where the trial was going to be held. This past week, six district attorneys from different counties up and down the state got together and they decided where they were finally going to try him. We spoke to Sam Stanton from the Sacramento Bee for more on this. They're going to try him up in Sacramento County, where he lived and where he was arrested in April. They have determined that there were so many crimes there and in Northern California in general that it would just be easier for everyone involved to do a joint prosecution in Sacramento that includes all six of the counties that have charges filed against him. And we also found out some new charges against him, too. He's already been charged with 13 murders, but there's some new and kind of creative ways they're charging him. They're being very aggressive in what they're doing with him. 
He was accused of about 50 sexual assault as the East Area Rapist in the Sacramento area. And today they filed 13 counts against him that are related to sexual assault cases from the 1970s, nine of them in Sacramento, four of them in Contra Costa County. But they didn't charge him with rape. They charged him with kidnap for robbery. And the reason they did that is because the statute of limitations on rape cases ran out long ago, but there's no statute on this particular charge. And so the allegation is that he moved the victims at knife point or gun point as part of a kidnap for robbery that led to the sexual assaults. The uh, use of a knife or gun also adds extra time to a possible sentence, or it's kind of a special charge as well, right? Right. And in addition, 10 of the 13 murder charges have special circumstances attached to them. And so that could conceivably lead to prosecutors seeking the death penalty, although they made clear today that they have not decided what to do about that. DNA is at the center of a lot of this case. It's how he was caught, how they connected all the dots. One of the reasons why they initially said that it might be held in Southern California, the trial, was because that's where a lot of the DNA evidence was. Some of the crimes in Northern California, there's no DNA associated with it. I mean, is that going to be a problem? They say it won't be a problem. Initially, they were thinking that they would try it down south because there is DNA from several of the murders in the Southern counties that can tie him to these cases, they say. But there's also some DNA out of Contra Costa County. Two of the four kidnap for robbery charges have DNA evidence. None of the kidnap for robbery charges in Sacramento do, and the two murders in Sacramento don't have DNA evidence either. But the district attorney, Emory Schubert, made it plain that they think they can convict him. They don't file charges unless they're convinced that they can do it. Has there been any mention of the death penalty or possible sentences? I know it's very, very early, but, you know, he's an old man already. If you talk to these prosecutors, they'll tell you openly they don't know if this case will ever get to trial. It's really up to the defense and what their next move is, whether they pursue a delay or change of venue to go somewhere else. They just have no way of knowing. The death penalty aspect of it will require each of the offices that has murder cases to sit down and follow their process for deciding whether the individual deserves it in their mind, whether there are mitigating circumstances, what kind of life they live. But it's hard to imagine that someone who's faced with 13 murder charges isn't going to end up looking at the death penalty. When do we expect this to possibly, as you said, if ever, go to trial? I mean, I would assume it'd take a long time to get everybody together on the same page to... They want to move rapidly, but there's just no way to know what that means. He's got a court appearance Thursday at which he will be arraigned on these new charges, the 26 counts that were filed today in Sacramento. But remember, he was arrested in April and he hasn't even entered a plea yet. So this could literally go on for years and years. Yeah, I mean, it was just last week that we spoke to you and we got the 13th murder charge for Clark Snelling. So, yeah, things are moving fast in some respects and moving very slow in others. What's the sense of the community out there now that we know that he's caught and, and how this case is progressing so far? Well, there's palpable relief. Sacramento was literally terrorized by these crimes. And I know it was decades ago before I got there. But when you talk to people who live there, including the DA, Henry Schubert at the time, they have a hard time expressing just how fearful people were. And so there's tremendous relief. And when you go to these court hearings that D'Angelo appears at, a lot of the victims and the victims' families will travel long distances just to be there to see him. They want their day in court. They want to look him in the eye. He's 
a boogeyman, really, you know, even though he's caught now and it happened years and years ago, the memories of those things always live on. We'll keep following up as the case against the Golden State Killer progresses. Sam Stanton, reporter for the Sacramento Bee, thank you very much for joining us. Anytime. Thanks. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.